0: You're listening to a Saturday edition of Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Preparation for revival. Let's pray. Lord, as we walk through this preparation process, would you quicken our hearts? Would you give us understanding and the willingness to eagerly, hungrily search after you? Lord, let me just step back and you step forward. And would you be seen, would you be manifest today among us in the word that is spoken. Achieve your purpose in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray and by your blood. Amen. Spiritual revival begins not with the descent of the Holy Spirit, not with refreshment, but with the determination to repent. Spiritual revival begins not with the descent of refreshment, but with the determination to repent. When we look at what happened in the book of Acts, the third chapter, let me begin reading at verse 18. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold to all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then, turn to the Lord, so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Our cry is not to be, Lord, refresh us, pour out your Spirit, give us revival, without our taking care to do what the Scriptures tell us to do. Peter said the first step was to repent. Peter knew what he was talking about. He says the first step toward revival in a church is repent. But you know, it's not enough to simply repent. You know what repent means. It means to turn aside from a course of action, to go the other way. But that's not enough to bring revival. We must also turn to God. Many people today repent and turn to something else that is worse than what they repented of. Lord, I repent of my gluttony. So now I'll go to television. Lord, I repent of television, so now I'll go to the novels. Always another way to medicate ourselves, to numb ourselves out, so that we won't have to look at the reality of our distance from Almighty God. Revival does not come by simply exchanging one sin for another sin. My father used to say that people want to run from one stump to the next. Then God goes and digs them out of that stump by the power of the Spirit, and they run quickly to the next stump, all the time repenting of their sin, but never turning to God. So the call of the book of Acts for Pentecost is repent, and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, not sin. Sins may be wiped out and times of refreshment may come from the Lord. So before God can revive us, we must repent, change our thinking about our sins, and willingly reform our living, and to walk then in reformation. Reformation involves identifying and eliminating everything in our lives that is not in God's will As it is revealed in his word and by the scripture. Now, what is so very difficult for me as a pastor is that when I was a child growing up in the church, there was a common understanding that we were there to deal with sin. There was a common understanding that was accepted among the believers in this little country church, that we were there for the sole purpose of pleasing Jesus Christ. But in our culture today, we have flipped things in the body of Christ so that our understanding is that we go to church to please our own family or to please our own hearts, and that we go to get something. And we're consumers who attend church, so we want the program, we want the band, we want the entertainment, we want the friendship, we want this, we want that, and if we don't get it, we're going to go down the street to the next church, and we're going to get it there. That's so foreign to the body of Christ just a few years ago. That mentality has to be addressed. Today, it's the majority that walk this way. We want revival. We want the Holy Spirit. We want the fullness of God. We've been praying for it. Without obedience, prayer is powerless. You can pray as much as you desire to pray, but if you do not accompany that prayer with concrete obedience, your prayers will be powerless. There is no path to revival that does not lead through the camp of Reformation. There is no path to revival that doesn't take us into the camp of Reformation. And I use that term, camp of Reformation, because we have to stay there. We have to set our tent up there. We have to tabernacle in the camp of reformation. Just as Abraham cast out the bondwoman and her son to retain God's blessing, so we must put away everything offensive to God in our thinking, in our talking, in our way of living in order to receive revival. Revival. Now, this is so radically different than what my thinking was even a few years ago. I thought that when revival came, all of this would happen to me. It will happen to many. But God first has to have a reformed people to begin to pour himself into. And you've been blessed to be called to be a part of that reformed people who will walk in obedience to the Spirit, not in your own power, not in your flesh, but in the power of the blood of Jesus. And there has to be a singular determination in our hearts to repent and to turn to God, a conscious, passionate, daily, hourly experience where we say, I must have Jesus, nothing else will do. Nothing will satisfy my heart but Jesus. Now, today I would like to walk you through the New Testament's explanation of revival. I'd like to walk you through God's plan for the church as it's laid out in John the 17th chapter. There Jesus specified the very things that are vital to him and to his father. Now, I must tell you, I have struggled over the prayer of Jesus in John 17 for many years. I have only brushed against it in preaching once or twice. Then, as I've been crying out to the Lord, he began to just unfold this whole chapter to my heart. I was astonished by it. And so today I want to unfold for you, and I urge you to get pen and paper. You're going to need to take notes. This chapter is so difficult for me because I'm a Western man. I think in abstract forms. I don't think concretely. Jesus prayed in concrete forms, not in abstractions. He didn't pray in ideas. He prayed in actual reality, the way we walk. And so for me, John 17 has always seemed like a meandering prayer. But as I began to study it, as I began to pray over it, and the Holy Spirit began to unfold it, it is sequential, it is specific. And I must tell you also that I looked at this prayer through certain glasses. I looked at this prayer asking it the the specific question, what does this prayer tell me about Jesus' expectation for how I'm going to function in his kingdom? What is Jesus' inner, private, heart's desire for you and me? Because in this prayer, he very specifically includes you and me all of those who will believe in him through their word, through through the testimony born, I'm one of those. So this prayer is about you and me. So walk with me now through this 17th chapter of the book of John, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the light went on. First, Jesus is saying, that he wants us to know him intimately in this life. He wants us to know him today, intimate knowledge of God. It's not God's intent to hide from us. It's not God's intent to be silent and cause us to remain as orphans. He said, you will not be orphans. I will send my Holy Spirit to you. It is not God's heart to leave us alone. It is God's heart that we should know him intimately. And of course, this word to know means to have intercourse with. That is to become one with. And so the first thing Jesus tells us about us in this prayer is that foremost in God's heart is that we should know him. That we should know the Father. That we should be brought close into his heart. So please today, right at the beginning, let go of all ideas that God is out to get you. God's not out to get you. God's not out to judge you. He's not out to punish you. He's out to seek and to save the lost. Now, the second thing that quickly comes to the surface as we read down through this wonderful prayer is in verse 8. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. In other words, number two, we are called to accept and obey the word of Jesus as our final authority. Now the serpent, the dragon, came, and he said, you can't trust God. God has held back from you. He's not giving you his best. If you'll do what I tell you to do and eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God's, and you will now be the one who judges what is right and wrong. Jesus is saying, these people that I've called to know me have made the decision that they will accept our word for what it is they will no longer believe the word of the dragon, of the serpent, of the devil. They're not going to believe that word anymore. Now that causes me to say, Jesus, would you now check every word that comes into my ears to make sure that I know the difference between your words and the devil's words? Make sure that every word that rises up in my spirit is clearly identified as either the word of Jesus Christ or the word of darkness. And let me not accept the word of darkness. Let me accept the word that calls me to know Jesus. So let's be very clear. One of the ways we test the word we hear is whether that word gives us an excuse to sin or whether that word calls us to know Jesus. And so everything that I now want to engage in, I have to ask it some questions. If I go and do this, will the net result be that I will be closer to Jesus, or will I be further away from Jesus? Because I now accept his word, I accept his judgment, I no longer have made the decision that I will be the determiner of what is right and wrong. Well, you know, Jesus, I just can't quite agree with you on that. I think that's all right for me to do. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. I accept the word that Jesus speaks, and his word is final. Now, let's draw a very quick distinction. My word is not final for you. I'm the under-shepherd. Jesus' word is final for you. So if you have an issue, take it to Jesus. Don't bring it to me. If you bring it to me, and that's all right, you know what I'll say to you. I'll say, let's take it to Jesus. I'll say, let's pray about it because I don't have the wisdom from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to determine what is right and wrong. I have the word of Jesus. His word determines what is right or wrong, not my word. I gave up the right to be the fountain of right and wrong. Jesus is the fountain of right and wrong. It's his word we've accepted. It's his word that saves us. It's his word that brings life to us. So we have to have his word. And that's why I constantly, constantly urge you, read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, four to five times a year. Read the scriptures because that's the final authority. That's the word that gives us life. Now three. Chapter 17, verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. First step, he says, I want you to know me. I want you to come into my heart. Second step, I want my word to be absolutely final for you. I want my word to have authority. Now he says, if if you come into my heart, if my word is final authority for you, you're going to now have my joy. If you do not experience the joy of God welling up in your heart, and causing you to burst forth in praise and thanksgiving, it's because you have not accepted Jesus' Word as the final authority in your life, and you're now in confusion. Anybody comes to me and says, "Pastor, I'm confused. I say, "Let's go to Jesus. All the confusion is cleared out at Jesus' feet. Pastor, I don't know what to do. Come to Jesus." He'll tell you what to do. He'll speak with you. And the joy of the Lord will begin to rise up in your heart because you're not conflicted anymore about what is right and wrong because the word of Jesus is planted in your heart. And that confusion is quickly eliminated as you come to him. He wants you to be in his heart. And you notice that one very brief phrase, the world hated you. That's a harbinger of of what's coming next. Look at chapter 17, verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. In other words, the Lord wants us not to be removed, not to escape. The Lord wants us to submit ourselves to the developmental process that he has put in place, the testing process that he's put in place. So let's walk step by step now. He says, I want you to come close into my heart. I want you to accept my word as the final authority. I want my joy to fill you and I want you to submit to the testing process. I want you to be willing to not try to escape, but to submit to what I'm doing in your heart. In my walking this out, there are times when because of the testing I'm going through, I will let go of all the joy of knowing Jesus and feel like I am a victim and feel like I'm being treated poorly, and begin to complain against the Lord and say, how could you let this happen, and how could you treat me this way, and why don't I have, and why can't I go, and why can't... And the Lord doesn't respond to that. There's just silence. He doesn't respond. Because the heart of Jesus is that I would have the joy, the fullness of joy in my heart, And then in that joy, I would submit myself to that testing process, not pulling me out, but letting me there and letting me understand that I can have the joy of the Lord in the midst of the testing if I will let the word of Jesus be the final authority in my life. But some of us have made the authority of our wife the final word or the authority of our husband the final word. Or the authority of our children, the final word. Or the authority of the relatives, the final word. Or the authority of the boss, at work, the final word. And Jesus is saying, no, that'll steal your joy. You'll lose your joy if you do that. Let me be the final authority in your life. Let me speak into your life in such a way that you'll come into agreement with me. I'll put the joy in your heart, and you'll go through this testing time with my joy filling you. Look at 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, in other words, by persistent obedience to his word, we are sanctified by the blood. In other words, the blood comes as we're in this testing process, as things seem very difficult and hard. We have the joy of the Lord, we're hanging on to it, we're in this testing process, and as we walk through that testing process, the promise is we will be sanctified by the word of God. We will be sanctified. We will be made holy. Sometimes I look back at some of the things that have happened in my life, and I say, I thought I'd die back there. But instead of dying, holiness was worked into my being. So that now when I come to that same testing, it's not even a testing. I just say, Jesus, you see this deal? I'm not going to touch it. I trust you. I'm going to walk by faith through this thing. It's not even a question. Now watch in verse 21. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them, that's you and me, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, this is so exciting because it's saying, as I walk with the joy of the Lord in my heart, I submit myself to the testing process, and I am becoming sanctified. He's saying, you don't have to walk this alone. Join together with a whole group of people who've committed themselves to the same walk. And let your love be evident one to another as you walk through this testing process. I told Jan yesterday, I said, sweetheart, do you know I could not have walked this road if you had not been in my life? I couldn't have done it alone. I couldn't do it today alone. I needed you to come and walk beside me. Well, you know what? The same is true of all of you. I could not walk this path alone. If it were just Jan and myself, I could not walk this path. I need all of you. I need the encouragement. I need the rebukes. I need the... The chastising, I need the help, I need the comfort. That's called koinonia in Scripture. Leaning one on another. I need to have my telephone ring, and I hear Brother Kevin's voice on the other end saying, Pastor, I just wanted you to know I love you. Do you know how awesome that is? That walking together in fellowship... And some of you have still determined in your heart to walk alone. And the testing process becomes so hard, you blow it off, and you walk out and you gorge yourself on the world. You sear your heart, and then you wonder, why isn't God talking to me? I used to have a high school principal who said so many times I got sick of hearing it we would all groan as he started to say it. He'd say, the banana that gets away from the bunch gets skinned. The banana that gets away from the bunch gets skinned. It's true. Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, is saying that as you have determined to know God, as you have determined absolutely to accept his word as your final authority, as you have then... Allowed the joy of the Lord to come into your heart. You've persisted in this testing process, this developmental process. He's saying, now you need to do this with other people. Because he knows how hard it is to walk this alone. We need each other. In the Spirit of God, Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to always say, The Christ in my brother's heart is stronger than the Christ in my own heart. And what he meant by that is when I'm down, my brother is going to speak the word of Christ into my heart, and I'm going to be encouraged, and I'm going to hold on to the joy of the Lord in my spirit and I'm going to walk by faith, and I'm not going to throw it off. I'm not going to gorge on the world. I'm going to continue searching after Jesus because it's his heart that I desire. He's the one I love. He's the one who loved me. Now, I want you to look at chapter 17, verse 21. Chapter 17, verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then look at verse 23. I in them, and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. In other words, there is a corporate spiritual unity in truth, in faith, and love. And we are to grow in such a way in that unity that the world will look at us and they will say, those people have been transformed. Those people have been reformed. They have been reshaped. I have to be like them. The world will look and they will say, look how they love each other. You know, right now, what's often said, Christians love to go out to dinner after church. You know how many times friends of ours who are waiters in restaurants have said, Sunday's our worst day. I've said, why? He said, because all the Christians come out to eat and they won't tip. They're cheap. Now, maybe they told me that so that I would really tip them. (laughs) But you understand. In other words, the world can look at us and say they're cheap, they don't pay their bills. They say, I'm a Christian, and that's supposed to mean, give me a deal. You know, I've got a a man, a, a Korean man, who does tailoring of clothing. And when I need cuffs, put on a pair of pants. I'll always take my pants there. When I need a jacket redone, I'll always take it there. He's up at the mall in Springfield. You know what the Lord has made me do? He'll give me his bill. And the Lord always says, you don't pay him what his bill says. You pay him what I tell you to pay him. And so always, $5 to fix the cuff on my pants. That's what he charges, $5 to fix the cuff on my pants. So I always give him $10. And he... To this day, every time I do that to him, he says, No, 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 no. Five dollars. So now when I go, he charges me three dollars. So when he charges me three dollars, I give him twelve dollars. understand, go to the dry cleaner. Pick up the dry cleaning, and it's $12.10. Pick up the dry cleaning, pay the man, and walk out before he can give you the change. And he'll say, oh, no, no, sir, your change, your change. No, no, have a good day. Now you walk in, oh, thank you. he's on edge. He doesn't know what you're going to do. So when you go in and it's hot outside, you make sure you stop over at the ice cream shop and you bring him an ice cream so that in that hot, miserable place where he's laboring, he can have a cool, refreshing taste of ice cream. You should see the faces of the workers when you show up with a whole big box of sodas, ice cold, for the laundry workers. See, we're so accustomed to being the consumers, we sit down at the table in the restaurant and we say, I'll have this and I'll have that. Whatever happened to, please may I have, I would appreciate it if I could have. Would this be possible? But no, we're the master, and they're our servants. And believe me, when we get a servant, we want them to know they're my servant. The Lord Jesus calls us to walk in a very different way. He doesn't call us to be tight. Isn't the money all his? He doesn't ask us to pick up that buffalo nickel and make it squeal. (laughs) He asks us to be generous one with another. He asks us to go the second mile with one another. Not to be wasteful, to be loving. Now, there is a belief that if I take $5 out of my pocket and give it to Mark, that Mark now has my $5 and I have no $5. That's the belief of the world. If I take $5 out of my pocket at the command of the Lord, and I give it to someone, we now have $5 more. Amen. Not $5 less. We now have $5 more. Oh, thank you, Lord. To understand, the Lord wants the church to be so dramatically different That when the world looks at us, they say, This people, we don't understand. Because they have no framework of understanding outside of Jesus. So when they look at us, our face should not look like we need a Holy Spirit facelift. there should be a joy bubbling up in our hearts. The walk in following Jesus is not a hard walk unless we're rebelling. I praise God when we rebel, it becomes a very hard walk. But the walk in following Jesus is a, a joyous celebration as the testing comes. We're together with brothers and sisters. We're not alone. And as that Testing process goes forth and we're sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Outside people begin to look and say, Whoa, those people are different. You give them a bill and they give you more. You ask them to do something and they do double the amount. There's a joy that's irresistible in their spirits. There's no judgment against us. There's no pride and arrogance and superiority in their spirits. They're just, they have no enemies because they just overflow with this compassion and this love and this mercy in the little things. I mean, Jan went over to have a pair of my shoes Resold now, a pair of soles put on a pair of shoes is about $30. That's expensive. So she went in to have the, the shoe man look at the shoes, and, and he said, Oh, by the way, I don't know how we did it, but last time you had your husband's shoes in here, we didn't charge you for it, and we have a note that that you owe us $30 extra. What's Jan to say? I would never accept a pair of shoes that was not paid for. In Jan's mind and heart and in mine, we absolutely know that we paid for those shoes. We would not accept anything on credit. And besides, he extends no credit. So this man right over here in Dale City, he wants $60 for this pair of shoes. Well, I've known a day when I would have walked out and said, that's your loss, brother. It's your problem if you missed out on a charge. You know, my wife came home and said, she said, honey, I smiled at him and wrote the check and paid him in advance of his repairing the shoes and then went to the store and bought him donuts and coffee and took him back donuts and coffee. And he was utterly shocked. He expected her to read him the riot act. It's hard to read someone the riot act feeding them donuts. Hard for me anyway. Do you understand what I'm trying to describe for you? The Lord has called us out on this walk. And he's not called us to be hard. He's not called us to be legalistic. He's not called us to be judgmental. He's called us out to walk together with exceptional, extraordinary mercy and grace and love, one for another, and for those around us. To heap coals of fire on their heads. Now look at verse 26. I have made known, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I, may, that I myself may be in them. He's saying, as you walk this out, the very nature of God begins to be manifested in your life who God is, becomes synonymous with who you are. You become like him. The very nature of the Father and the Son will fill us, and we will be full of holy love. That's the result of walking this out, step by step day by day. And let's go back now to chapter 17, verses 21 and 23. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And 23 again, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Do you understand? When this begins to happen, we don't need to pass out tracts. We are the tract. A man said to me, I'm waiting for someone in the office to see that I'm different. I said, how many years have you been waiting? 20 years. He was ready to retire. I said to him, is it possible that no one has asked you that question because, in fact, you're no different than they are? Became very angry, which said to me he was no different than they were. Or the young man who went away to do his summer job from college, And he came to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, I'm so concerned about what's going to happen this summer in the logging camp where I'm going to work. As soon as he got home, the pastor immediately called him aside and said, how did it go this summer? He said, it went wonderfully well. Well, tell me what happened. They didn't find out I was a Christian. We think we need to be on the radio to grow. We don't need to be on the radio to grow. We think we need to go out and evangelize to grow. We don't need to go out and evangelize to grow. All we need to be is the beauty of Jesus Christ planted where we are. And then the magnificence of Jesus Christ will spread like an aroma through the workplace, through the family, with the relatives, in such a way that they will say, I have to come and see what's going on in that church where you're at. Fruit is born not by force. Fruit is born through the natural growing of the apple on the apple tree. And the natural growing is what I've described for you today. This is the prayer of Jesus. That we'll begin to look like and taste like Jesus. Our actions will be so radical that people will marvel. Now pardon me for referring to money one more time. Money is the is the place where everybody is sorted out. Money is the place where pagans simply can't begin to understand generosity of spirit. To see a pagan in difficulty, and to step into that difficulty, not with a quarter or a dollar... I mean, sacrificially to step into that situation at the command of the Lord and say, the Lord has told me that I am to lift you up in this situation. Oh, but let me tell you, you'll never be able to do that until you've done it in the body of Christ. Have you ever ever looked at what you have to do in the flesh and heard Jesus tell you to do something else? and step in and do with that money what Jesus told you to do, and have to then just wait on the Lord. Those of you shaking your head yes have had a glorious experience of what it's like to follow Jesus. Until this money God is broken, we'll never bring the anointing power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Have you ever been confronted with a situation where you know you're right, and you say to the other person, I can't argue this issue with you. All I can say is I'm sorry if it's hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. What if we stopped using our rightness as a weapon and laid it down? What if we didn't have to be right anymore? I can't tell you how many times I find myself in conversation about the stupidest, simplest things. And I find myself being competitive to be right. and want to convince them that I'm right, about which car's better, which method is better. I mean, simple things that are of no consequence, but suddenly they become great mountains that have to be conquered because my pride is at stake. My rightness is at stake. I mean, what would happen if we walked into our places of employment no longer grasping for money, and no longer grasping for being right, but said, my purpose for being here is to be Jesus in this house, to bring the aroma of God into this place? Then evangelism will take place. And then in that place, Revival will come. Now look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God is saying, I want you to see me. I want you to see what the Father did for me. Jesus is saying, I didn't walk through this to have it all to myself. I didn't walk through the agony of the crucifixion in order that the angels of heaven could glorify me. I want you to be with me, you of the human race that I died for. I want you with me, and I want you to watch because you're going to share in this glory. Now, there is a glory of God we don't touch, and that is that he is everything. He is the omniscient one. He is the almighty one. He is the all-powerful one. But there is a glory that we will share with Jesus, and that is that we are his children, and that he loves us, and that we are going to be set apart throughout the ages as those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I can't begin to get my mind around even the idea that Jesus wants me to be with him. I tried so hard during high school and college and as an early minister to be with those I wanted to be with. And here comes Jesus. And without my saying anything, he says to me, I want you to be with me. What, me? You want me to be with you? I want to be with you, Jesus. We're not going to walk this path of testing always. We're not going to walk this path of agony, of the groaning gate, the narrow path. We're not going to walk this always. I've had to smile because some of you have said, as I begin to walk by faith in Jesus, it feels like the path is so narrow and It feels like it's not solid. Well, the reason it feels that way is we're used to walking in the way of the world. That's the way that's not solid. The walk with Jesus by faith, that's a solid walk. We can't fall off that. He's got us. He's holding us. His arms are about us. And he's saying, look, walk this out, then come and be with me. Be my children. So today, I need to say again, God's not against you. He's for you. His arms of love encircle you. And he's saying to you, will you come and walk with me? Will you let my word be your final authority? Will you cast off the word of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, will you cast off the word of the serpent, the devil? Will you let my word take root in your life? Will you let it be your final authority? Will you let my joy spring up in your heart? The joy of the Lord's trying to spring up in some of your hearts, and you're saying, I'm not gonna be joyous. I've got to have it my way. Until you deliver me, God, I'm mad. That's not the road of delivery. That's the road of the devil accusing God, bringing judgments against the Lord Jesus. You know what the word Satan means. It means accuser of the brethren. So as the joy of the Lord tries to spring up in your heart, don't stomp on it. Water it. Let the joy of the Lord come up in your heart. Endure those testing times. Be in the body of Christ, where brothers and sisters are walking through the same pilgrim journey. Know that God's intent is that his full character should be revealed in your life. And that as that character is revealed in your life, and the joy of the Lord grows more and more powerful, the world is going to look at us and say, I've never seen anything like it. Now, I have to just add one caveat. As the world looks at the Christian, who is truly a Christian, they're they're either going to say, how can I become a part with you? Or they're going to cast stones at you. They're going to scorn you and ridicule you. They did Jesus, and they put him on the cross. And the Lord is saying, are you willing to endure that testing even under the cross? Will you walk this thing out with joy in your heart? I mean, of what use is it for Pastor Jan and Pastor Ray to walk this road if we walk it in bitterness and anger? We don't. We walk it in love with each other and with you, with joy in our hearts, thanking Jesus that he's counted us worthy to walk with him, wanting the fullness of his character to be revealed in our lives, persisting in the walk so that the character can be written firmly, never to be erased throughout eternity so that when Jesus comes and I see him face to face, his likeness will be in me, and he will say, I know you, Ray Greenlee. I don't want him to look at me and say, Depart from me, you religionist. Oh, God. I don't know who you are. I don't want that. I want the joy of the Lord to well up in my heart When I see Jesus, I don't want to cower asking for the rocks to fall on me to hide me from the glory. I want the glory to be what I've already seen in my prayer closet. I want the glory to be what I already know, walking with Jesus day by day, so that, as my father used to say, my last day on earth and my first day in heaven are basically the same. I'm hidden in Jesus. His glory is about me. His joy is in my heart. And I walk in the wonder of knowing Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So some of you today have trials that are very sore. I lift you up in the name of Jesus. Some of you are exhausted from the journey. Be fed on the oil and the wine of the Lord Jesus. Let the wounds be salved over. Let the bandages of the Spirit be put on. Know that he sees the suffering of your heart. He sees the heartache. He sees the questions. Focus on Jesus and accept his word as the final authority in your life. And he will carry you through because he has prayed for you Almighty God, thank you for praying for me. Thank you for for praying for me, Jesus. Thank you for your mercy to your servants. Thank you once again for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. is glow.